0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 192. Today we're talking with Marco Wolf, an archaeologist, a student archaeologist from Germany, who I know personally from the project that I was just on in Ur. Marco, within about a week of uh, leaving Ur to go to Lagash my wife sent me along a blog post i'm not sure how it ended up on her newsfeed but it was from one of the one of the editors of the advances in archaeological practice which is a journal that uh, listeners of this podcast know chris and i mine constantly for ideas and content and the blog post is called looking forward to the end of digital archaeology and basically his his premise is that well digital archaeology the word digital doesn't add a whole lot to archaeology because everybody's doing something digitally nowadays, and that's something that we've said on the podcast. But we can't really let go of it either because Chris and I are both geeks, and we both like a lot of computer and scientific and technical aspects of archaeology. But we have said that digital archaeology is maybe not the. It doesn't have the cachet that it used to. However, there are some people that do a lot of digital, so much so that the uh, that the that the title probably still fits. And you, Marco, are somebody who is definitely a digital archaeologist, or at least an archaeologist who foregrounds the different kinds of digital work that you do. So I was wondering, and this is maybe an unfair question to lead off with, but I'll go for it anyhow, is do you consider yourself a digital archaeologist? And
1: if so, why or why not? Oh, a difficult question. Yeah. To be honest, as a I, I would have said no in advance. I For me, the all the, the digital methods I use in the field, for me, were always part of field archaeology. Mm-hmm. When starting excavating in Germany, there was already lots of stuff where we had lots of digital methods. And when I was on my first abroad excavation in Kurdistan, we had a very, very digital workflow already with different kinds of gps total station 3d modeling and the kind for me that was from from the get-go ah okay that's how you do field archaeology so it was never something different from the the norm so i would have said i'm just a normal field archaeologist no
0: that's that's totally fair and that's that's kind of the point i think of this post is that everybody uses digital tools now and so you know When I was your age as an archaeologist, the fact that we were using total stations was pretty, you know, cutting edge. And now it's just expected that most projects are going to use them, even though you know I still love them. A few years ago, we had discussions on the podcast about photogrammetry, and now photogrammetry is just being done casually by pretty much everybody in the field. And yet, you know, so I, I definitely agree that that. How do you separate the digital from the archaeology with modern field workflows? But again, I am going to go back to the point that that what I saw from you in the field at Ur was somebody who definitely foregrounds those uh, those digital tools over, or maybe not necessarily over, but definitely brings them up at least to a level of other less digital more analog kinds of tools and the digging and the drawing and the the kinds of things that we've done for you know for a hundred plus years as archaeologists so before i go down this rabbit hole too deep can you tell us uh, on or the kinds of digital tools that you were that you were using uh to help us with the excavation
1: yeah in in ur uh, of course we started with the the total station Mm -hmm. since it's the I think the backbone of every modern archaeology you have the the setup of your measurements, your uh, GIS system, and everything you find must be located at some point. Mm-hmm. So that's for me always the backbone, and there it starts. Other than that, methods I use, there's lots of photogrammetry in the field, since I'm big fan of the option to look back at stuff you may have not seen while excavating, but now when you have the model, you have still the option to get some information, not all information, but looking back on it, you may see some stuff in you know, color grading, getting contrast and uh, stuff like that. So for that use photogrammetry with normal mirrorless camera or, or with a drone to get the whole trench in one model. Other than that, we also used the photogrammetry back at the off back in the house when 3D modeling. Small finds we thought were interesting enough to have them as 3D objects, which then can later be processed um, with many in many ways for drawings, getting sections of it, comparing them with, in size with other objects, or just trying to yeah, get a better understanding on the technique, how it was
0: made. Right. So the photogrammetry, definitely, that, that was one of the things that impressed me, that you were using photogrammetry quite a bit. And again, a lot of people are using photogrammetry on different projects, but uh, you're using it in both of the major ways that people are using it. You're using it for, uh, for documentation of the trench of the excavation and for documentation of the objects that were coming out. With different setups, do you mind uh, describing a little bit the different setups that you personally were using?
1: uh yes. in the field there is no real setup it's just taking pictures making sure and with now some years of experience having an idea how to take pictures and what to be careful of when taking pictures how is the shadow cast that uh, always making sure that uh, all the stuff you gone from from the the place so that not yeah uh, how you say when you're taking a model of your trench and then you f- see, oh god, I forgot that there's a brush lying on top of the wall, and now that brush is in the 3D model. That looks not professional. Stuff like that, and that's for the field. And what I what I think you want to talk about is my my setup in the house for the small finds, where I had like a, a photo box cube with LED lights inside, where I put a turntable, just a rather cheap one you can find everywhere they use it normally for uh, advertisement when they put it up in their in their windows and put uh, their the stuff they want to sell on top of it so it turns a little bit and looks very nice and i use that turntable to put on the objects and then while they turn in a very slow pace i just press my camera and just take lots of pictures (laughs) (laughs) from different angles which then get meshed together for a a dense cloud and 3d model the process afterwards. You said that the um
0: that the ones in the field uh, you're using for documentation, and that oftentimes you see things post facto in the models you've made. You know, soil colors, various kinds of uh, things that are highlighted that might not always show up immediately in the field while you're you know covered in dirt and sweat and uh, and digging, but that you can catch them later when you have a little uh, a little more time do you notice the same sort of thing happen with with the artifacts that you do uh photogrammetric models of
1: for me i realized when it, already while um, taking the pictures of of uh, objects or of structures in the field i'm getting uh, trying to get all the details so i'm getting more focused on the details mm. So um, already while taking the pictures, I realize stuff and see stuff and like, ah, that's interesting or that's uh, something I just now realized. And then later, um, especially when taking the big models for the trench and you have yeah the top view and can see the whole trench from, from above, you can see lots, lots of stuff you cannot see in the field since you're already standing right on top of it. And on the small finds also, you get especially the very, very, very small ones where yeah you can t- see with the blank eye, but when it, it's in 3D, you can zoom in to um, yeah millimeters, uh, nanometers, so you can get all the details you can never see with the with your uh, with only the eye. For example, cylinder seals which are, can be like two centimeters mm-hmm. tall, and then you have this model on your computer, and you can zoom in so it fills the whole screen. So of course you see all that all the different stuff and the detail they put into creating those small objects and that's very interesting to me
0: chris and i go back and forth because chris would always like you know some kind of a scanner that you could just boop and have uh, an object or soil or site or whatever just photographed essentially documented in in extreme detail and i always like the human element especially of drawing because that forces you to stop and look and evaluate what's uh, what's important what's salient about something whether it's a, a you know a section drawing or um, an object drawing pottery profile whatever and what you're saying here and I hadn't considered it though I should have is that the very careful photogrammetric work is kind of bridging that gap it's not relying on the autom- automation of the machine but you are stopping and thinking how am i going to you know what what's important about this how am i going to make it show up in the photogrammetry you're you're actually Balancing those two kinds of approaches—the uh, automation of the machines with the uh, the more manual approach of traditional drawing—I'm going to actually think about that one for a while because that's a benefit that I hadn't considered before. So, um, and that's actually—that's why I wanted you on because the fact that you are, you know, such a digitally focused in terms of your the methods that you approach your archaeology without separating them out as their own special thing means that you've come at these tools in a slightly different perspective than I have. I mean it's 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 an age thing, right? <laughs> you know, I remember when we got our first flatbed scanner <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. But, uh yeah, it's, it's, it's born digital or not born digital, but, uh, but I guess, uh, you know, for cohorts of archaeologists. So anyhow, that, that ability to slow down to do the work as opposed to speed up to do the digital work, uh, which is what people tend to focus on, is, uh, is an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that before. Are there, given that, are there a particular set of tools that you like best? Are there, there are certain ones that you gravitate to? You mean it's in specifically with photogrammetry, or in- no, no, not no, in general, just uh, archaeology, and it could even be analog tools. It could be the trowel, for all I care. I'm just kind of curious that uh, that you you managed to squeeze something out of the, the photogrammetric work that I hadn't considered. So I'm wondering if there's a, you know a general approach that you have, a general set of tools that that you know just tickle your fancy
1: to use. Uh, I fancy to use. Hmm, the, the difficult question. Um, I'm for, for me that what I found for myself is uh, the camera <laughs> to be to be completely honest mm-hmm. which i take not only the, the photogrammetry but also the excavation photography and I realized for myself when comparing myself with uh, colleagues or um, on even on project with other colleagues on, on the same trend uh, how much more pictures I take. <laughs> than mm-hmm. anyone else because i um i always have the fear that later when i try to present uh, what i did in the feed i have not a perfect image uh, And um, i I'm was like i'm sitting there and so oh, why did i not take any picture of that and not from this perspective why is that wall only photographed from the north and not from the south so uh, i'm a huge a huge huge fan of cameras always trying to get uh, on the yeah being up to date, what is now the best setup to use where you have to be careful, which uh, data data type for images is long, most long lived and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, checking to set up my own setup, always better getting newer lenses checking if um, there's maybe a possibility to update my case to our with a higher resolution stuff like that. So I if you ask me like that I would say the camera is my favorite digital tool. No. Well, I think that a lot of archaeologists
0: would agree with you. And again, the born digital thing, I you know, I started my photography journey with film and so it's hard for me to get over mm-hmm. the idea of oh well, I can only take the one perfect photo. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. No, I can take the the 100 photos and three of them are going to be perfect if I uh, if I use digital, uh, you know, a digital camera as opposed to the film camera. But anyhow, let's take a break right here because what you just mentioned about taking all those photos, I've got a few follow-up questions for you.
2: Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ArcPodNetFeed at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
0: Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 192, segment two. Marco, Just before we went to break there, you were talking about photography and taking way more pictures than anybody else takes, just as out of a fear of missing data, which makes a lot of sense, but it does bring up to me another aspect of digital archaeology that a lot of people don't have a very good grasp on so i'm kind of curious what you do how do you manage your data what what do you do with all those all those photographs you take and with all the other different kinds of digital data that you generate the the photogrammetric models the magnetograms
1: whatever else very good question because that's always the main issue during excavation for example in ur i started now to have like an uh, external SSD Mm -hmm. hard drive uh, with me with two terabytes Thunderbolt connection. So I can work in as fast as possible with the data and can upload all my data onto that hard drive and um, having all the information on one drive and not having the issue of loading it onto my computer, uploading it on a backup drive, and then not always being sure is everything on the backup or have i forgot something because mm-hmm. um, at some point the hard drive on my laptop at least for the moment is limited um, mm-hmm. and has lots of stuff in it so i cannot put all the information of a project on there so i'm always trying to make always looking uh, on ways for organizing data what i try to do is for example for the photogrammetry i start uh, f- for the photogrammetry it's uh, always best to use raw data as, uh, which is then con- transversed into a tiff or a dng mm-hmm. uh, which i use in my workflow there's different workflows and everyone has their own opinion about it but for me i i, I personally like to use dng images for photogrammetry and after i did that i try to yeah, I delete JPEGs. I do not take for photogrammetry because I don't need that, so I just skipped over those. Mm-hmm. When taking them to check if the model does work, if I have not time to fully render it, and when I know, ah, okay, it works, I re- uh, delete the JPEGs to get more space. From the point of view, how to manage um, it's always uh, in how in order. Damn, and always making sure that only the data I need is in the same file. Uh, uh-huh. corresponding conning of obvious ways is to compress the data, of course, to make it more manageable. And what I also do is to rename the different data files with a bridge and stuff to make always sure when I find like a single find that is kind of lost, I'm always knowing mm-hmm. ah okay, it originally belongs there. And do you have a rigid naming
0: scheme or file structure that you use uh, for saving all your various kinds of data?
1: Depending on the project, the way the the project wants me to to digitize the data, uh, the way how they use the date system, year, month, day, or stuff like that. And yeah, where I am. But normally it's always like I put the date first, Mm -hmm. the place where I am. And I always, for... Each picture, when I'm working, when, for example, in Ur, each individual picture got an own number. I've uh, had a list, Excel sheet, mm-hmm. where each photography was listed, uh, when was taken, what was, te- what was seen in the image, uh, what was the original file name when it was transferred from the uh, SD card, and what is its Ooh. name now. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty extensive. Um, to always be sure that when something comes up, uh, or when I'm searching for something, I always have a list of s- seeing where is it? Uh, when did I take it? Mm-hmm. And the, the Excel sheet is then there's the possibility to, to upload the CSV data up to a database if that is needed. And I also have my own data system uh, where I can upload all those data sheets. And then, how do you transfer all this data and
0: the uh, and the Excel sheet meta- metadata to uh, to the dig director or whoever needs to uh, to assemble it?
1: Uh, that depends on how the dig director wants it to have. In 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 mm-hmm. Uro, for example, I just gave him the Excel sheet, so he has the information just in Excel, and he can use it how he needs it. Some cases we were talking in advance when the database was fully set up. At some excavations, I. Optimized my list, my Excel sheet, the way so I can upload it perfectly to this database mm-hmm. so that they have all the information I seem necessary for the uh, documentation in the setup they prepared in advance.
0: And uh, the photographs themselves, I mean, if they have the Excel sheet but they don't have access to the photographs, how do you get the photographs to them?
1: That's also something in my workflow. uh, Each day there's a backup. Everything I do, every report I write, every image I take, every model I I work on is uploaded on a backup drive, which will then be brought on the same day to the feed director, which then does a backup for himself. Oh, perfect. So then,
0: just uh, (laughs) yes. You do have this very structured uh, approach that you that you repeat across different projects, which I think is is fantastic. I think that people need to do that, that they, you know, trying to reinvent how they're going to store files for every project is a, is a non-starter. It's a way of losing data. How much time do you end up spending just managing your data at the end of the day uh, when you're in the field? And how much of that spills over to after the field work? Or do you get everything done daily, day by day?
1: Normally, when in the field after coming back from excavation, most of the day is then set up in managing the data. It always depends on how much produced during the day. You know it as well. There are some days where it's kind of boring. There's some pottery collections brought in, <laughs> and maybe one or two pictures. So there's not much to work afterwards. But in some days, especially on the last week where you want to finish everything and be sure that you documented everything, there's lots of stuff coming in. Um, I remember on my for example, the last example on my last day where I finished the documentation I took 120 images excavation photographs Mm -hmm. to document the the situation at the end of the season Mm -hmm. and all those have to be renamed, put into my Excel sheet, um, have to be described and uh, giving all the information I need, uh, I believe what's necessary. So mm-hmm. it, uh, on those days, it took me a long time, but normally I always finish on the very day itself as with mm-hmm. writing reports and stuff. Normally I'm always on day, I can always uh, finish the whole documentation that needs to be done on the day, uh, on the same day and having nothing have to work afterwards except for photogrammetry especially the small fine photogrammetry sometimes takes a little more work since sometimes there's issues with noise in the dense cloud which have to be deleted and stuff like that and mm-hmm. the nearer you get to the end of the excavation you have no time for such detail work so you say you keep you take the images you make sure that uh, you can render a model with the, those images bring them back home and then work with them back at home. But uh, the feed reports and the, the images and my descriptions of small finds and uh, the like will always be done on the same day on the, in some cases, maybe shift onto the next day, but then uh, try to, to never carry work longer than two days and it normally uh, gets even.
0: That's good. That takes a lot of discipline to do it like that. But I think that that, again, I think that's the appropriate way to work with one's data as much as one can. I mean, you know, illness and uh, other unexpected things always crop up in the field. But uh, but if you have a system like that in place, that, that really, I think, helps in the long run. Uh, I'm going to switch gears here because after I left Ur, I went up to Lagash and, and did a number of different projects there that I was working on. But the new one that I was working on was magnetometry. Listeners to the podcast would have heard me talking about that on the last episode. Uh, after Ur, you went down to Uruk, to do magnetometry. (laughs) And you're much more experienced in magnetometry than I am. I want our listeners to know. Mm -hmm. But can you tell them a little bit what you're doing there, how much you've worked with magnetometry in the past? uh, Just give us a little
1: overview of what you were doing when you went to Uruk. Yeah, experience-wise, maybe in in, in taken when when I started compared to you. But I'm also just still at learning stuff (laughs) for when i learned uh, back in 2017 my second year of studying there was a class where they yeah showed us pretty much every geophysical prospection method from magnetometry to gpr um ert um, and stuff like that which we can use in the field how does that work technically as much as we could understand that with uh, no further background of the, the physics and uh, what are the problems with that, and there I met Professor Jörg Fassbender from the from uh, Munich, who is professor here at the university, or still and is still giving classes, um, and he is a professor for geophysics and he is in the he's working with archaeologists since I believe the 1980s, mm-hmm. doing magnetometry ex- prospection. Pretty much everywhere and he's always in search of students especially from the archaeologists that he can take in the field to teach them and to have uh, (laughs) assistance and yeah i was lucky enough that he brought me with him and since 2018 i regularly with him at least once a year on a prospection uh, everywhere we went to russia when that was still an option to uzbekistan tajikistan Lots of times we were, in, we were in Iraq, in Georgia, stuff like that, always working with total feed magnetometries, magnetometers. And la- this year we went, in the second half of November, we went to Uruk um, as part of a project with the German Archaeological Institute, where we tried to uh, add to the magnet- magnetometry data that Jörg already put up in the years since 2001. So he already started this project back in the early 2000s which then had to stop and is now um, back since 2016 and every year he tries to be now down there to add up and trying to get the whole mount prospected, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, for 500 uh, hectare i don't know what's an acre um, beast <laughs> it's enormous and uh, now after i don't know now seven years or seven prospection campaigns we are at one third maybe (laughs) a little bit less so (laughs) it takes a lot of time and yeah yeah, this year we came back to get more data about the uh, lower city and the uh, northwest of uruk since uh, from the city itself we know lots about the the, the holy buildings at the, the center of the city which were excavated since the early 1900s by lot, mostly german archaeologists but we do not know anything about the structure of the canals or the houses of the normal people when, when you want to say it like that that built all those huge temples and mm-hmm. that was what we are interested in to understand the layout of the city if there is roads that are set up in advance or is is it a city that was kind of grew with time and the channels in itself we are very interested in waterway systems of the uh, ancient near east and that's Mm -hmm. what we are mostly focused right now so we wanted to get at much of this main channel that comes from the north and goes down on the the west side of the city Oh, fascinating
0: i have some follow-up questions for you but why don't we take a little break here and i'll ask you them on the other side (laughs)
2: every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 192. Final segment for today. Marco, uh, right at the end there you were talking about doing magnetometry at Uruk. And I can't recall, were, did you also do the magnetometry with Dr. Fassbinder at Ur as
1: well? No, unfortunately not. That uh, project was still with other colleagues. Uh, in that time, I had, was it a different project? Mm-hmm. I know the data, but I was not part of collecting it. Right. No, I was just curious because, as you well know,
0: there there are stakes, wooden stakes from that project all over the site. And Dr. Adelheid Otto, the project that she was working on in conjunction with ours was uh, excavating a large house kind of on the... Outer part of the city, not a lower tell, just uh, you know the outer edge of the main tell, and that I believe—and correct me if I'm wrong—I believe that that was found in that magnetometry, or initially identified in that magnetometry, and then they've been uh, been excavating it since.
1: Uh, yes, Dr. Otto is huge fan of the prospection method to first get an understanding or more information. And then judging with that data and other data like uh, satellite images or drone mm-hmm. images where to start excavating.
0: Yeah, we've been doing the same at Lagash. And I think that a lot of people are bringing these same kind of suite of tools uh, for Iraq, magnetometry, drone imagery, satellite imagery, old aerial imagery, spy photos and the like. It seems to be a really rich vein to, uh, to
1: tap. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and especially in, in Ur, there was... For example, the trench I was supervising at the East Mount of Ur was also chosen because of the magnetometry, which was done there right. in 2019. And how closely did the magnetometry uh, hue to what you found when you were actually digging? It was rather good. I was rather surprised because uh, the yard we could see in the magnetometry was exactly where we found it in the end. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting because the difference from the magnetometry, you could see okay, there's walls that make us pretty much rectangular or square unit, which is pretty large five meters in each direction, five by four and a half meters. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had the huge, you could see perfectly okay, that's the wall and that's the, the inside. But when we were excavating it, we realized that the floor of the yard was laying out with baked bricks as well. So technically, we should have not seen that the, the difference because it's the same material. Uh-huh. But since it was so deep, it did not show up in the magnetic image. <laughs> Uh, how deep was that? Because uh, I'm, I'm this. I'm actually
0: asking you this uh, professionally, not for the podcast. Yeah. But at Lagash, we're dealing with very, very little baked brick. It's almost entirely just uh, unbrake, unbaked mud brick, as opposed to Ur, where there's such a quantity of baked brick. Uh, how,
1: how much deeper was that floor than the walls? The walls, uh, compared to the highest level of, of bricks we could find, we had 70 centimeters difference. Oh, wow. So okay. we had like seven to eight layers of bricks before we hit mm-hmm. the, the floor, which was laid with baked bricks as well. And no indication
0: then that that, that, that courtyard was uh, was paved in the magnetograms?
1: No, in the magnetometry, we could see each room individually uh, since and the walls in comparison. So from my point of view, I was like, okay, that's all mud floor. I have to be careful mm-hmm. not to dig right through it but then we suddenly hit the big bricks. And I was like, ah. <laughs> well, that's, that's fortunate because I dig yeah. through mud floors all the time. <laughs> I, was like, oh, I see them not in section. Be... I'm like, oh, yeah, that was the floor that I missed. <laughs> and yeah. there's the
0: other floor that I missed. And there's the floor I missed before that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to be very careful. And then we hit the floor I was like, oh, I did not have to be that careful, but well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fortunate. Now, that's interesting, though, that – that it showed up differently with that 70 centimeters. Uh, I'm not surprised, but I am surprised. Uh, I wanted to actually uh, switch gears again here a little bit. Early on in the project, Where you were working was on what we're calling the East Tell, which is a smaller outline tell of the main mound of Ur. And we were having some troubles with the total stations and with the registration of our our survey stations. So there was a day there that we were working, you and I were working, shooting between two of our survey stations, one on that East Tell and one up on the main mound, back and forth, about 400 meters. And after about the third time you had to go there i you know back and forth between these two mounts i offered to go instead of you i said you know you're walking too much and you said oh no i'm used to walking you know i do geophysics and <laughs> i'm like okay also you're young but uh, but mm-hmm. sure you do geophysics therefore you're used to walking it makes a lot of sense uh, so You don't just do magnetometry when you do geophysics. You'd mentioned ERT. Is there a particular kind of geophysical perspective that you personally enjoy doing most?
1: In that case, I would have to say the magnetometry because that's what I mostly do, or Mm -hmm. uh, mainly. The ERT I used only three to four times. We're now Mm -hmm. going to use it again in in February when we're back in the field. Mm -hmm. But uh, mostly magnetometry because for me, it's always fun to to be in the field the whole day, walking and sweating, and then coming back at uh, the end of the day, processing the data and having an image at the end of the day, you can see, and you can see what you did and what you found. And that's always so, yeah, you can see so much more comparable to archaeological dig where you're sitting in a, a 10 by 10 meter trench for five weeks, and then you have parts of a house excavated in geophysics, in magnetometry, um, you have one day and you have a whole, <laughs> you have like well, 50, 60 houses that lay out. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. Uh, I was definitely getting
0: that same sense when I was doing the magnetometry at, at Lagash where, you know, I spend an hour and I do my 45 by 45 and afterwards I process it and I look at it and it's like, oh! <gasps> Oh my goodness! That's what I was just walking over. Look at this! I I kind of sense this. One of the things that I found fascinating was trying to correlate things that we saw on the surface with things that we'd pick up in the magnetometry, and then of course, you know, a step removed, things that we'd find in the excavation. Do you find a lot of correlation between soil stains or you know any other kind of surface visible feature? And your magnetometry, is that is that common?
1: Yes, of course. When, when you're walking and you're on the field, you're always checking, what can I see? And the most stuff, you only have the, the, the soil. So you're checking, can I see differences in the color? And um, I remember in Georgia, we had a huge acre and uh, you could see, okay, there's multiple dots with very bright brown color. And we were sure there must be the mud bricks. And when we were walking above them and then check back and say, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's the big houses, so like two to three meter big walls. And like, yeah, that's we could see on the <laughs> when we we're walking on top of it. But I can also give the, the opposite example for it because in the, you know, it as well in uh, southern Iraq where the these ancient cities where uh, there are some cases where you can even see the old houses while walking on top of them because the, the bricks are showing mm-hmm. from the surface. And when we were walking with the magnetometry above them, there are some cases where the, the layers of the bricks, it's, it's like only one or two layers of bricks left of that wall, which is so near to the surface that you cannot see it in the magnetometry or mm. only a, a small shadow of it. And you were like, but I was walking on the obvious <laughs> house, houses. <laughs> Why did it not show up in the magnetometry? So there's other also, also cases like that, but th- those are very, very... Yeah, they're not not they're very rare in most cases. If you see something while walking, it always correlates with the data you collect. We, for example, also have a a workflow where when we come back, we make sketches and the squares we walked. We make notes about not only what we could see on the surface uh, from the structures, but also Mm -hmm. from pottery and tools. Yeah, if yeah, if we could see, okay, there's. Pottery, from this period or from this period, we can see that there is lots of flint tools and stuff like that. We always note that, since that is also very, very important in related steps of the interpretation. To round this out, in addition to being,
0: well, not a digital archaeologist, because you already said no, but a student archaeologist who does geophysics and uses a lot of digital methods, I know that uh, from discussions with you, I know that during the off-seasons – Back home in Germany, you work as a contract archaeologist. Can you give us a sense of what that is? Do you get to use a lot of these same tools or is the regulatory structure in Germany such that you have to use different methods, maybe older methods? Because that's a problem that we bump into sometimes in the US.
1: Uh, yes. when Back in Germany, I'm um, contracted as a stu- student worker for a company, an archaeological company that is excavating mostly in the area around Munich. We have no real scientific uh, excavations where we apply for for money and start working, but we are getting called by uh, people that are building their houses uh, or construction sites that want to build a supermarket and stuff, and for them to check if there is any archeology span where they're building their uh, stuff, and which we are excavating so that they can continue with their work and the way how we do that work is supervised and set in stone by the bavarian uh, department for cultural heritage mm-hmm. uh, which um, give in irregular terms they pr- uh, give us a a book where the way how we have to excavate what kind of data we have to collect which we have to present them and that is um, how you say it, little bit behind what is now kind of normal or it's already in use in field archeology span from universities, museums, and institutes. I remember until 2017, we still had to use non-digital cameras with uh, film to document the the features in addition to the digital ones. And they only Mm -hmm. changed that in 2017 because they realized that in the long run, there will be no more film. instance it's it's a form of the only company Fujifilm uh, said that they will rapidly shorten their uh, production of those and then it was clear okay in the long run those analog cameras without digital this uh, and um, formats will just be yeah will be gone forever so they kind of like okay then we should right so
0: the that. choice in their case was forced by external factors yeah do you get a sense that there's an ability, uh, maybe not as a student archaeologist, but is there an ability to, to change, to adopt more new methods from within? Or is everything have to be forced from externally, like the, uh, the abandonment of film?
1: No, no. The, the department is always in search of new methods, trying to hmm. optimize their, their workflow. Uh, but a main issue about that is the way how uh, who has to pay for that because everything the department says that has to be done has to be paid by the people building the the houses, which in some Mm -hmm. cases, um, if they get way overboard and say every millimeter has to be in 3D and stuff like that, and it takes lots of work hours, lots of people, all the the private people have to pay for that. So um, they try to get a, a perfect balance between how much do we actually need on data to later if because uh, to to have later the option to really analyze that and how much can we ask the people to pay for that yeah that makes sense marco It's uh, been a
0: pleasure talking to you again i really enjoyed working with you and i hope i get the chance to again and uh, for our listeners it's what it's it's approaching no it's after one in the morning for you now <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and talk with us. And I hope that, uh, that some of our listeners find what you had to say interesting. And you know, I hope that other students find what you say interesting, because I, I thought that the way that you're negotiating the contract archaeology, the academic archaeology, the digital archaeology, the geophysics, and all these, again, was, uh, was a very interesting and well-rounded approach. And that's why I wanted you on here. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on
1: thank you for having me it was already so nice to speak with you again and if yeah if uh, there's an option to come back i'm uh, glad to be back <laughs>
0: wonderful <laughs> well take care good night <laughs> good night thanks for listening to the Architect podcast links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
2: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archepodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.